Kate Pullinger is a novelist and author of digital fiction, born in Cranbrook, British Columbia, and went to high school on Vancouver Island. She dropped out of McGill University after a year and a half, then worked for a year in a copper mine in the Yukon. I had to get that in. Traveled and eventually settled in London. Pullinger has written two short story collections. Her novels include When the Monster Dies, Where Does Kissing End, A Little Stranger, and most recently The Mistress of Nothing, which has just won the Governor General's Award for Best English Fiction. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Hello, thank you. And congratulations. Thank you. Thank Welcome you. back to Canada. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get back to Canada very often? Yeah, uh, I come a lot. I mean, twice a year, usually, at least once and often twice a year. The book, the best concise description of it I've read is that it's a triumph of caste over a common humanity. I grew up in England and I moved to Canada, although I was born here. I was aware that there was more of a class consciousness over in England compared to Canada. I think that it is true that in the UK it's still more in your face than it is in Canada. I think that Canada does have a class system like the US does but it's less easily discerned on the surface. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the UK because of the specifics of the way people speak in Britain you can still tell what kind of socio-economic background a person has by the by the way they speak. It's become less so over the last 30 years mm -hmm. but it's it still is a kind of generalization that holds true. So I think that Britain can seem a more class-bound country than other countries. But I think that it's just, like I said, more upfront than it is in other places. Because that gets to the crux of your novel. Or perhaps you could give us a quick... You've done this a thousand times, I'm sure, but crazy of the story. Yeah, The Mistress of Nothing is it's based on a true story about a British uh, Victorian aristocrat called Lady Lucy Duff Gordon, who at the age of 40 realized that her tuberculosis had become so bad that she wouldn't survive another winter in England. So she decides to go to live somewhere hot and dry. She chooses Egypt. And she leaves behind her whole family, including a toddler, a three-year-old, and travels alone with her maid, Sally Naldred. And they end up living in Luxor, up the Nile, with their Egyptian manservant, Omar. So it's the story of the three of them and what happens as the lives that they were accustomed to fall away while they're in Luxor. They kind of forge a new, a new way of living. Lucy Duff Gordon was, in fact, back in England, she was a, uh, a radical and a bohemian. Freethinker. Yeah, yeah, but things don't go as well as they might have done, and the repercussions of what happens fall very heavily on Sally Naldred, the maid. Yes, in fact, you start the book off with the, her the, pain. The book is the, told through the voice of the maid. And she tells us, basically, that I thought I had a connection with this woman. I thought that she loved me, and I do love her, but look what happens. She's told to go home. Although their relationship had moved far beyond what a normal lady, lady's maid relationship would, would have been. When push came to shove, all, everything to do with class came crashing down on, on them both once again and the old ways re, reinvigorated by the situation that they found themselves in. There's some intense human emotions that are at play and when push comes to shove, our poor maid gets shoved. Exactly. So yeah. it really does define or put an exclamation mark after the fact that class comes first. Yeah, and then at the end of the day, Sally is, she's just a maid. 
She has no money, she has no resources, she has nothing to, she has nothing to fall back on. When she leaves Lucy Duff Gordon's household, she's entirely on her own. Because it's based on a true story, you know, I did, I did a lot of research and for me the kind of fiction lay in the whole territory of what happens to her once she leaves Lucy Duff Gordon's household. Because no one really knows why she just suddenly got the boot, right? Well, we do know why. It's because of what happened with the, with the manservant. All that is historically yeah. accurate. Yes, but the only sort of clue to this is what was so fascinating for you, I guess, is why did the lady turn on the maid like this so yeah. so abruptly? That's what the book explores, really, is the the kind of human emotions behind the behind what we know happened, the experience of the maid once she has completely left the historical record behind. Because there's a wonderful biography of Lucy Duff Gordon, which is where I got the initial idea for the for the novel. And called, you got called, help from the, the author too. Yes, yeah, yeah who was yeah. A, a friend of a friend of mine. Catherine Frank, the biographer, um, told me that she did, you know, she tried hard to track down what had happened to Sally Aldred. She tried in Egypt and she also looked in England. She went through all the births and marriages for that period looking for her and those kinds of records in the UK are very extensive and there was no record of her so that was where I got the idea from that she probably didn't come back to England that she perhaps had stayed in Egypt and what kind of life would a woman of Sally Aldrich's class at that time be able to create for herself in Egypt. It's a really interesting period in Egyptian history during the building of the Suez Canal and the ruler at the time was making a conscious effort to kind of Europeanize Egypt. And you read Mahfouz's novels? Of course. Yeah, I read all kinds of Egyptian literature as, as well as you know any history of 19th century Egypt that I could get my hands on. Although the Victorian period overall there's a lot written about but there isn't actually that much written about Egypt because so much of what's been written about Egypt focuses on ancient Egypt. And the art, there was a sort of yeah. a real interest in Victorian England. About ancient Egyptian yes. stuff, yeah. yeah. The, whole of, the whole of Europe had Egyptomania yes. in the 19th century, yeah. One of the things that I'm reminded of, Peter Schaffer's Amadeus and the relationship between Salieri and Mozart. History only takes us so far and then he adds all of the, the emotion and that's like... Yes, yeah, well and it's, that's an interesting analogy because really the story for me is Sally Naldrit's story and her story is the untold story. It's mm. the story that, that history hasn't preserved for us because history has judged it as not worthy whereas Lucy Duff Gordon's story is available to us, is known to us. Her book Letters from Egypt has been in print since 1863. So for me, yeah, the, the more interesting territory was the untold life. There are many authors who are gripped by that. Juno Diaz, yeah, telling the story of the Dominican Republic, and also the uh, Lazarus Project by uh, Sasha Hemon. Oh, I don't know that one. About the life of a, a Jewish immigrant who was who was killed by the police. There must be a real urge to what do right by these people or see justice done. What what's the motive? Well, I think that that's part of it, definitely. But also, yeah, I mean, I think for me it was just what I was caught by was just this the, the absolute the kind of moment on the Nile where the kind of drama of the story takes place when Sally gives birth to, the, to her child and it's, she's kept the pregnancy hidden from her, her mistress Lady Duff Gordon and that moment the fact that they were on this boat on the Nile you know hundreds of miles away from any of their own families it was Christmas Eve all that kind of detail that is, is historically accurate. That moment, that idea, just really 
gripped me from when I first read the biography in the mid-90s. And then I just had this mammoth task of trying to figure out how to tell the story, how to make it work. It took me a long time to write and I abandoned it a number of times. And part of the reason why it took me a long time to write was it took me a long time to figure out it had to be told in Sally's voice. I always knew it was Sally's story. It took me a long time to figure out that it had to be her voice. And that's partly because I was reluctant to write an entire book in the first person because of the technical limitations that the first person gives you. So it took me a long time to get over that. <laughs> we, we mentioned it before our conversation. J.M. Kutsia's foe is very much about the fact that women don't have a voice. When stories have been told or history has been written, women and minorities, their voices have not been heard. Yes, and in the case of this story, there's a kind of very simple reason for it, which was that Lucy Duff Gordon was a writer. Mm. She left a written historical record of her own time, her own life. Her book, Letters from Egypt, there's a wealth of written material that she, either she produced or people she knew produced. She was the character in a number of novels. George Meredith wrote a novel with, with her as the main character in it. She was beautiful. She was beautiful, dynamic, interesting, you know, radical woman. Whereas... If Sally Naldrit was literate, in the novel I've decided that she is literate because Lucy Duff Gordon did have a history of um, educating her staff, but she's not left a paper trail. There's no diary of Sally Naldrit. You know, my, in my research I quickly found that there's very little material written by members of the domestic serving class of the 19th century. So, you know, that world is, is quite opaque to us. And that's part of what fascinated me about it. One of the criticisms I've read of the novel is that, and maybe it's not a criticism, but when reading a book like this, the reader is always tempted to go back and check the historical record to see, well, what's true and what's not true? Well, I stuck really very close to the historical record. Um, one thing that I did do was I telescoped a couple of, I tels telescoped two years down to one. But as far as the kind of what is known about what happened, I stuck pretty closely to that. But, at the same time, it's a novel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a piece of fiction. Another criticism. Sally's analysis of what underlies Duff Gordon's lack of empathy smacks more of 20th century psychology than of the 1860s. Yeah, well, I think that, that, I mean, that's an interesting thing. When you write historical fiction, that is both what you, you try to avoid and also perhaps what is unavoidable mm -hmm. is seeing the past through the prism of the present. It's not your fault that Freud came along. Freud just happened to <laughs> come up with his theories, and so you can't not talk about. No, no, and you know, writers think about insights. things analytically. Absolutely, exactly. no, it's impossible not yeah. to think about the psychology and the psychological drives behind your characters and the, the decisions and choices they make and the way that they act. I did my best to stay true to the 19th century, but the fact is I'm writing this book in the 21st century. To 21st century readers. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. I tried my best to use a kind of fairly pared down language that I felt suited the voice, suited the time. I mean, in a way I feel that that's a kind of criticism that I haven't really got a defense of, just because I've done my best to try to avoid that. If some readers feel that I wasn't as successful with that, then so be it. I can't really do much. You know, I went to, to Luxor twice, but I, what I always say to people is, 
yes, I've been to Luxor, but I've not been to Luxor in 1863. You know, that that would have been the most useful kind of research trip I could make. But luckily, the veneer of modernity is quite thin at Luxor. And although it, it carries a tremendous weight of tourism, mostly who come on boats and don't, don't venture into the town much. Um, it still is a kind of sleepy town, and you can, uh, I certainly felt, especially at night, it was quite easy to imagine what it would have been like 150 years in the past, that it's not that different, apart from the fact that if you stand in the wrong place in the temple and look in the wrong direction, you can see McDonald's. That brings you back in a hurry. <laughs> yes. I think that one of the most powerful pieces of writing in the, in the novel is right at the very beginning when she, the, uh, the maid, Sally, expresses her upset, really. Could I get you to read that? Oh, sure. The truth is that, to her, I was not fully human. I was not a complete person. And it was this thought, or rather this lack of thought, that compelled her, allowed her, to act as she did. She loved me, there's no question of that, and I knew it, and I had felt secure in it. But it transpired that she loved me like a favorite household pet. I was part of the background, the scenery. When she entertained, I was a useful stage prop. She treated her staff well, and I was the closest to her. I did everything for her in those last years. I was chosen to accompany her on her final, long journey. But I was not a real person to her, not a true soul, with all the potential for grace and failure that implies. My error was to not recognize this, not to understand this from the very beginning. When I did wrong, I was dismissed. I was no longer of use to her. No, worse than that, I was excised, cut out, as though I'd become part of her dreadful disease, a rotting, malignant, supernumerary limb that needed to be got rid of. So I was amputated. I was sent out into the world, a useless lump of flesh and bone, cast off, from the corporeal body. And then you go on to say that that's a bit melodramatic. <laughs> that's too much. That's dramatic. dramatic. Yes, yeah. that's what she says. <laughs> I'm speaking with Kate Pullinger, who has just won the bit of a mouthful, isn't it? The Governor General's Award for Fiction in English. Getting back to Lady Death Gordon, do you speculate at all? Is there a jealousy, a romantic attachment that may have been there that she resented, that she wasn't doing what... I think it was probably a big cocktail of, of different things. I mean, a couple of readers have asked me if I, I thought that Lucy Duff Gordon had herself fallen in love with Omar Abu Halawe, the manservant, and I don't actually think that that is very likely, and it's not something that I explore at all in the novel, because it, it that just doesn't ring true to me. To me, it, it's got to have had much more to do with her own grief about the loss of her own family, everything that she'd left behind mm. in London, and the fact of this love affair taking taking place without her knowledge, but right under her nose, must have been a terribly cruel reminder of of everything that she had lost and the fact that she was dying, even though living in Egypt gave her this kind of afterlife, this kind of seven, I think it was, extra years of life. I love the way you put that. It's, It's at the very end of the book. Egypt was a kind of afterlife. Yes. Because really, if she stayed in England, she would have died within the year. Yeah. And when you talk about the afterlife, there's a lovely, hazy atmosphere 
around Egypt. Well, and the ancient Egyptians were obsessed with the afterlife. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of what we know as Egyptian art and architecture is, to, well, so much of it is to do with their ideas about their afterlife, wasn't it? And what, preparation. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's very much where that notion that um, Lucy Duff Gordon, it was as though she died when she left England and she was living this kind of bizarre afterlife in Egypt. Whereas for Sally, it was really a new life, a new beginning. Adventure. I'm left to think too, of why didn't the family, why didn't they stay with her? Why didn't they, weren't, why weren't they with her more? <laughs> money, they didn't, although they were aristocrats, they didn't have any money. They didn't have land or anything. They were impoverished aristocrats. They, they had to live on... So they had to keep um, working then, in other words. Lucy Duff Gordon's husband's salary. Yeah, he worked for the treasury. So they didn't have any money. Although, of course, they had, in Victorian terms, they had plenty of money. They had a you know, big household staff, etc. But, but, uh, also, but also it wasn't the done thing. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the teenage son who she left behind in England was at school in Eton. He was at boarding school anyway. The three-year-old, you know, you wouldn't have taken your three-year-old with you. It just wasn't the done thing. And, and as well as that, they couldn't afford it. So, mm -hmm. And in those days, it took months to get to Egypt. So it's not like now. where <laughs> Yeah, you just hop on a plane, yeah. <laughs> One of the delights, too, I imagine, must have been placing yourself at the table with some of the guests that would have sat around their dinner table. Did you find that you were living that life for a while? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what it's like when you write a novel, is that you inhabit that world as fully as, fully as you can. That's part of why, even though I had such trouble with the novel, I stuck with it, was that idea of the life that they led in Luxor, in this house on top of the ruined temple. I mean, incredibly beautiful beautiful place, beautiful position, fascinating village life, fascinating river life. So all of that really inspired me and that was a world that I enjoyed dwelling in. And now you're in Canada, you're not dwelling here but you're here to accept certainly one of our most honoured titles. How does that make you feel? Well, that's just such a surprise and so just so wonderful. It's just the whole thing has just been absolutely surprising and wonderful. <laughs> Those are the only words I can use because it's just from the moment I found out that I got on the shortlist, I was absolutely amazed by that. And then, then to discover that I had won, you know, I still don't really believe it, even though this afternoon we were in the House of Commons being saluted by the MPs. <laughs> I still don't really believe it. I still, part of me thinks that tomorrow they're going to say, oh, sorry, wrong person. We meant to give it to Alice Monroe. <laughs> One of the nice things, too, is it's by uh, an independent. Yeah, independent uh, Canadian publisher, yeah, MacArthur, MacArthur and Company. Company. And Kim MacArthur's published me for years and has stuck by me through a number of books. I've never been a writer who's sold particularly well, so it's extremely gratifying to be able to... Finally, sell some mm. books for, for Kim and MacArthur and company. Interesting. I'm, I'm a collector, and they had the, the book in the stores, of course, but they've come out with a, another one with a cover that's got the sticker. The, the sticker. It looks lovely on there, too, doesn't it? it? Yeah, yeah, the gold yeah. sticker goes with the gold title. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a beautiful <laughs> book, actually. It's a beautifully designed and made book. And yeah, having that winner of the GG decal embossed on it is just kind of the icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. really. Speaking about books, I just want to touch on the fact that you write for radio and, uh, and film and digital media, and you've done a lot of thinking about the future of the book. I'm particularly interested in this M book for the cell phone. 
Could you just talk a bit about, first of all, what you've done in that area and where you see the book heading? Well, it's an area that I've been working in since about 2001. So I've been involved in electronic literature and digital fiction and the, the debates around the future of literature since then. And it's something that, that really fascinates me. When you look at the history of, of humankind, We've always told stories, obviously, since the dawn of time. That the joke that the you know the cave painting, the cave painting is the first PowerPoint presentation. We've told stories. We've always told stories. Biological. Yeah, absolutely. It's a yeah. human desire, a human need. It's been argued that it's a way of testing the future without having to go through the pain. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it has all kinds of profound functions for us humans. If you think about storytelling in those kinds of terms, the fixed type print novel, what is it, 250 years that the novel's been around? It's possible to think about literature and storytelling where perhaps it's continuing to evolve and that that evolution is something that interests me. And although I, I obviously I love books and I'm a huge reader. I also think that we need to be, to be thinking about what new kinds of storytelling, the new technologies might allow us mm -hmm. to participate in. And you've been doing something with breathing and Oh, that was websites one of my, yeah, yeah, no, I've done all, I've done all kinds of projects. One, yeah, one of them involved using a software that responded to the rate of the reader, reader's breathing. That was a cool project. <laughs> that was called the, the Breathing Wall. Quite esoteric, but also very interesting. Um, but I've also been involved with a lot of fiction projects that are multimedia, that use text and video and music and sound to tell a story. Pretty distracting, though. Well, well, no, not not really. Not if you take well, you go to my website and have and have a look. It's there. Which is? It's katepullinger.com. And on the digital page there, there's there's a bunch of examples of that kind of fiction that I've been involved in in writing. But I think that I think that the phone is an interesting platform for storytelling, and that the potential for using phones to tell stories is very vast. And I don't mean having to read big chunks of text on your phone because that's obviously not not going to work. I mean projects that are a, a kind of storytelling that's more interactive, that perhaps you get a little video, you get some small bits of text, you get, you know, the, the possibilities are, are enormous. A bit there like are, a blog post, it sounds like. Well, there are already storytelling projects for phones in different part, parts of the world. In the English-speaking world, it had... Well, one of the main ones is in South Africa, actually, in, in English, among other languages. But it just seems to me that, you know, the cell phone is so ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. We have it in our pockets. We have it at times where we don't have a book. We have it when we're stuck in a lineup. We have it when we're waiting for But it for is a with bus. us all the it's time. It's with us all yeah. the time. Mm -hmm. So it just to me, as a writer as, and as a reader, the idea of perhaps getting some kind of interesting content on my phone. To me, that's very appealing. You know, why not? Why not try it? Why not see what we can do with that, with that platform? You mean in terms of sort of very short little stories or little quotes or smart sayings or things that you would just come up with? Anything like that. 
Or on a different level, maybe you're reading a book that you're really interested in and you want to find somebody who's, who lives nearby by you who's also reading that book and is really interested in it. And you've got some little application on your phone that sh shows you where all the readers of Faux are in your vicinity. Do you, do you see what I mean? It, yeah, the potential yeah. for connecting people. Physically through, as well physically, as... Physically, yeah, yeah. Face to face as yeah. well as virtually through the phone, through mm. these new platforms seems to me there's a lot of potential there. And I also think that it's the, the under 16 generation who are going to really make this all happen because even people who are in their 20s are not born digital. But there still will be wonderful editions of books put out because yeah. of the fact the fine press movement is stronger now than it's ever been. Absolutely, yeah. And I don't think that the book is in any danger of disappearing. But I think that there's a way in which digital files are extremely convenient. I think that there's going to be some books that we want to have as books, and then there's going to be other texts that we don't really need a physical copy of, that we're happy with a digital file of. Just winding her down, quickly get back to the 19th no century. No digital platforms then. No digital platforms, <laughs> but an interesting parallel because of the serialization of uh, mm. novels. Absolutely, Dickens, yeah, yeah, completely. Little chunks of little chunks of text that you can buy for a few pennies every week or every month. And line up at the harbour fronts to get them when they come in from England. Yeah. Then at some later point, they're bound together in the full volume. Yes, I think that that is a very interesting parallel. I, I was thinking the other day when I was on the plane coming coming over to for the Gigi about Margaret Atwood in this very extensive book tour that she's on at the moment, using all different kinds of platforms to promote the year of the flood. And I was just thinking, that is just Charles Dickens. If Charles Dickens was around now, that is what he would be doing. He would be commanding huge audiences. He'd be doing all kinds of different platforms. He'd be tweeting. He'd be out there. And I, I just think that it's, you know, there's lots of ways through to readers now and that writers need to be thinking about that. Well, one of the best ways to get to more readers is by winning a prize. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, congratulations again. Thank you. Uh, I've been speaking with Kate Pullinger, a novelist and an author of uh, digital fiction who was uh, born in Cranbrook, British Columbia, and now uh, lives in England. She teaches creative writing and new media at De Montfort University in Leicester. Congratulations again. Thank you very much.